At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. Today's episode, we are going to dive back into really the definition of what it means to provide quality healthcare. We're talking EMRs, we're talking quality metrics, we're talking do these things actually help in care settings or are these are burdens to patient care and the doctor-patient relationship, how we navigate them and pretty much touching anything and everything under that umbrella. Please welcome to our show, Dr. Anthony DiGiorgio, Assistant Professor of Neurological Surgery, University of California, San Francisco, and a Senior Affiliated Scholar with Mercatus Center. Dr. DiGiorgio, thanks for coming on to Healthcare Americana. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, and thanks for all the hard work you're doing on your podcast. This is great work. It's a labor of love. It is absolutely, I get to meet fun people and say, like, you know what? This is an interesting topic. So longtime listeners in the show will know that the quality word, actually the word quality, let me say that, or the Q word is one of my triggers, right? I, I kind of joke like I need that like DJ like, wow, like every time everybody hits that and like buzzers go off. What in the world does the word quality mean in healthcare? And everybody has a completely different definition of it. So you've recently been published in JAMA. You've been talking about all these different things on how quality metrics. Well, I'm going to let, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. So Dr. DiGiorgio, what is your view of the word quality in healthcare and how quality metrics affect the care setting? That's a great topic to talk about. Um, you clearly, I'm very passionate about it. So the, the Q word, as you mentioned, uh, is triggering for a lot of doctors, right? We hear quality and we immediately think about quality metrics, and we think about the, the V word or the V acronym, value-based payment, uh, which is a natural offshoot of the quality movement. So quality metrics are nebulous, as you mentioned. They can, they can mean a, a bunch of different things depending on who's defining quality, right? It's qu and even amongst different patients, quality can differ. Uh, some patients may uh, look at extending their life as quality. Some patients may just want uh, different functional uh, capacity in their life, and that's their definition of quality. Some patients may want, uh, you know, a handful of medications and to be, uh, you know, shown the door. And that's their definition of quality. So it really differs depending on who you ask. Measuring quality is not a bad thing, right? I think any industry in America measures quality, right? Any firm in any industry in America is going to have their own quality metrics that arise naturally within that firm 
Um, every industry, every firm has you know internal met- internal metrics they track. Uh, it would be insane for any any firm to not track quality metrics. Our division at UCSF, of course, we track quality metrics. Uh, these are metrics that come up within the division that we decide are, are valuable to us uh, as neurosurgeons that we want to look at going forward. The problem with the quality movement is when it was associated with the value-based payment movement, where Medicare decided it's going to define what quality is from a top-down approach and then withhold or give bonuses on payments based on physicians and hospitals meeting these somewhat arbitrary quality metrics. And so I think that's really where, where the quality movement has started to frustrate physicians is that these metrics don't always necessarily align with what physicians think are important quality indicators. There, there's numerous examples. I'm, I'm happy to get into them. We go over some of them in, in our, our piece in JAMA that I had the, the honor of publishing with uh, AMA president Jesse Ehrenfeld and um, one of the affiliated scholars at AEI, Dr. Brian Miller. The article is titled Improving Healthcare Quality Measurement to Combat Clinician Burnouts, uh, released September 1st, 2023. So everything within there, I'm like, there's a couple of different subjects within that title itself. Obviously, burnout is a huge one. How much do you find that a burdensome quality measurement tied to reimbursement affects physician burnout or dissatisfaction with her career? Huge, a huge effect. And it really depends, you know, the, the quality metrics affect different physicians differently. Um, I know some uh, obstetricians who have 80 metrics in their department for for obstetrics, right? 80 different metrics for, for one physician that they have to meet. I mean, it's not possible to keep track of all those as you're performing your, your daily job as a physician uh, and also keep you know, the patient's best interest in mind. Let me ask you, uh, just to jump in there, from an 80 you know, quality metrics from an OB standpoint, do you find what people look behind the screen, kind of Wizard of Oz style, and say, you know what, these metrics are just for revenue maximization, not necessarily getting this person healthy and keeping them healthy? Correct. Yeah, it's, it is, again, it's top-down metrics that have been devised by CMS, and it's CMS using the power of Medicare and Medicaid to then influence payment and these payment bonuses and penalties can be in the millions of dollars. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's about revenue. And, again, there, there's very little data that these metrics actually increase quality. Again, that, you know, that, that, of course, is a triggering neg- nebulous word. But, you know, even the Government Accountability Office in 2019 issued a report saying, you know, these metrics don't align with the overall goal of improving you know, what we would define as healthcare quality. When the topic of value-based payments come up, and I get asked this a lot just sitting in my seat, they're like, well, what do you think about value-based care? I'm like, well, this sounds great. It's it's Orwellian in practice. It's doublespeak completely. And they're like, what do you mean? And I go, well, in my view, a hospital cannot afford a readmission because that's what you're talking about. Like, that's when penalties come in. So if anybody ever goes to the hospital, they don't want you to come back. So they either want you to get better or they want you to die. That is it. And they laugh. And I'm like, well, that's an extreme example. But that's where the incentives are driving people. I mean, you, you may laugh, but that's actually been studied. The, the hospital readmissions reduction program is one of the first quality metrics to be implemented by CMS. And they've studied it and showed that, that sure enough, if you disincentivize readmissions, readmissions go down. You know, the, the, the quality metric worked. It got readmissions to go down. Unfortunately, they also showed that it came with an increase in mortality because hospitals were doing exactly that. And, and that was that was in another JAMA paper showing that that hospitals reduced admissions, readmissions, um, and they increased mortality when they did that. And that, that makes sense. There's anecdotal 
evidence that you know physicians were told to not readmit patients uh, that had come back to the ER uh, because they didn't want to affect their hospital's quality metrics. <laughs> it's, I, I'm not laughing because it's funny, Doc, but I'm like, this is not... A, it's tragic. It, it is a classic example, and we see this all the time, misaligned incentives in healthcare. And, you know, tell me, I, I might be a romantic, I might be a purist in this, but I'm like, the goal of our healthcare workers, everybody wants in there, these are people who choose this to help other fellow human beings. They want them to be better and they want them to live a healthier, better lifestyle, right? Like going back to quality, quality of life. Like that actually means something that's relatively ubiquitous to people, but yet still very much variable. But the payment structures are just so screwed up. And you know, people say, oh, healthcare is broken in America. And I'm like, no, it still makes a lot of money. It's just everything else. The, the way we pay for it is broken. Now, you're a big proponent of saying, look, we can actually drive positive change through maybe not CMS, but through state Medicaid programs. Give us a little glimpse on your thinking when it comes to that topic. I'm a big proponent of the, the free market, obviously, why I'm here. And, and I've probably read a little bit too much uh, Hayek and Friedman and Thomas Sowell. But um, I believe in, in things coming from the ground up. And, and Medicaid is actually a pretty good area where that can be uh, where that can be done because there's so much leeway between states and how they design their Medicaid programs. So going to the issue of quality, if, if states want to have quality metrics you know, come from the ground up and emerge naturally, I think that that's great. Um, and I think that that would really allow uh, different metrics to arise and show you know, what works, what actually can improve the overall delivery and function of healthcare, and not just have these you know, heavy-handed top-down things coming from a, a, a detached you know, CMS, which operates at a federal level. So Medicaid, um, I've been a physician at Safety Net Hospitals basically my entire career, so I have a lot of interest in how Medicaid functions. Medicaid is really great because, like I said, it has that sort of experimental nature where different states can try different things since each state is in charge of its own Medicaid program w with some leeway. And then using the free market within Medicaid and things like Medicaid managed care organizations really allows these, these interventions to sort of percolate up from the bottom to arise naturally and not be just these heavy-handed CMS mandates that come from uh, federal government. That's what I love about, you know, America is like 50 different experiments, right? I feel, I feel too often that the free market advocates just refuse to even acknowledge or think about the Medicaid population where that Medicaid population is growing. Uh, in Indiana, one in four Hoosiers are on Medicaid right now in our Healthy Indiana plan. The expense just went from $2 billion to $4 billion in healthcare expense to serve that population. It's the number one insurer in the state. Yet our leaders are not looking at this. Our you know, elected officials are not looking at this as a way to say, you know what, maybe we can use Medicaid to come in and make our landscape more competitive. Maybe we can come in and challenge insurers that think that they have almost this monopoly and this hospital pricing, all this kind of stuff. Can leaders, if they have a stomach for it, use Medicaid program to come in and implement more free market-minded initiatives? I think they can. Um, it requires some leeway. Unfortunately, the, the federal government does have some handcuffs that it puts on Medicaid programs, right? You couldn't just make, say, a voucher program and give your Medicaid beneficiaries a, um, a voucher to go purchase private insurance. However, yeah, I think that there, there is a lot some leeway that can be uh, obtained via waivers with the federal government uh, where you could really design your Medicaid program 
to utilize a lot of these free market forces. I think the overall goal should be fewer people on Medicaid. I think a safety net program is essential. I do believe that that we can strive for universal coverage given free market principles using Medicaid as a broad safety net. But the key is to make sure that the people on Medicaid are the ones who actually need Medicaid and not people who might actually be better served on a private insurance plan. Um, either they're healthy enough, they could get a lower premium. You know, Efficiencies could be certainly improved in the uh, ACA marketplaces where these people could probably get pretty affordable care on a private insurance plan. Therefore, just leaving Medicaid for the people who really do need this social safety net that can't otherwise get a reliable uh, health insurance coverage via the free market. So I'm curious because, you know, we talked to a lot of different people on the show who say we need Medicare for all. And then other people say abolish all the safety net, point fingers, all this kind of fun stuff. I'm curious to see, you know, in your mind, how we can square having a safety net that actually works, right? Actually gives people the ability to go access a physician to become healthier. How do we do that using free market principles without backsliding and in some circles they'll say look we don't want to strengthen the ACA because that's a political football back and forth so how do you single thread that because I feel like that is the ultimate question like we can answer two or three of those questions but we can't answer well we need better personal insurance when there are no options out there so there's a lot of moving pieces Dr. Georgia how do we get to that end point yeah I think you know the principles of free market competition uh, driving improvement both in in there's that nebulous word again, quality and in cost. And because quality is so you know, individual specific that, that allowing people to have options to choose you know, different insurance plans, different coverage via uh, health savings accounts, via capitated plans, giving people the option to choose what's best for them, um, and then making sure that there is this backstop of a social safety net where you know, nobody's going to be left holding a six-figure bill because they were in some trauma or, or had you know, cancer diagnosis show up out of nowhere. And really, again, reserving that, that social safety net for those that have no other options of private insurance. Um, and then making sure that, that Medicaid is just reserved for those. So if, if, again, if you're a young, healthy individual, you can probably get fairly reasonable private insurance with not a whole lot of government subsidy behind that. Uh, and that could actually free up Medicaid for those who, who truly do need it. Where do you see the role of insurance alternatives playing in this? I think there's a huge role. I think that, um, and, and it's a matter of, you know, again, another kind of buzzword, but equity is, you know, why, why do we restrict alternatives like health savings accounts to uh, people who are on private plans? Why, why don't Medicaid beneficiaries deserve that as an option? You know, can they not uh, save away some money maybe with a government subsidy to have more control over their own healthcare options? I think that, you know, right now we say Medicaid patients, your only option is Medicaid. You must go into this program that has very few options. You know, if you give them more control, that would, again, here's buzzword quality, would improve because they would be able to get the healthcare services that they find most important for their individualized health. Staying on the subject of Medicaid patients, we hear all too often, it's a very broad brush, and it doesn't seem like a lot of states have the data and the information to say, you know, this is true and this is not true. But most of the stories we hear coming out of clinical settings is, my Medicaid patients don't show up. My Medicaid patients are most likely to be abusive. They don't follow physician instructions. How do you react to that? And has any state done a good job of saying, well, we've actually surveyed all this. This is this is true or these are completely false. These are just stereotypes. You're right. It's a broad brush. 
Medicaid, as, as you mentioned earlier, Medicaid is growing and it actually is the largest insurer in the country right now, it insures a plurality of Americans. And about 80% of my patient population is Medicaid. And they, they are a very heterogeneous, very differentiated population. You're right. There are, um, I have a significant part of my patient population who are homeless and have significant uh, substance abuse problems. I also have a significant part of my population that bounce between different jobs and, and don't you know, are hardworking individuals who don't otherwise have access to, you know, regular employer-sponsored health care. And so it, it is a broad brush. And yeah, there are challenges that come with treating Medicaid patients. And that's why we need the social safety net to be there for the homeless person with substance abuse problems who can't get employer-based health care and who can't even really manage a health savings account. That, that safety net needs to be there for that individual because they're going to get care regardless. But at the same time, you know, we can provide better options for that hardworking individual who is kind of bouncing between jobs and can't get reliable access to employer-based health insurance. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our fantastic sponsor, Freedom Doc, and then we'll be back with Dr. Anthony DiGiorgio exploring EMRs and all the fun that they bring to a physician practice. So first, quick message from our sponsor, Freedom Doc. Physician burnout is a killer. It's driving our best and brightest out of medicine. The only solution to burnout is to be your own boss. The easiest way to be your own boss is join the Freedom Doc Physician Network. Freedom Doc is a unified brand and will fully finance your practice so you can enjoy a healthier lifestyle, take better care of patients, and spend more time with your family. You focus on patients, Freedom Doc focuses on your business. So if you're ready to be your own boss, visit our website, freedomdoc.care, to learn more and schedule a consultation with one of our experts. Freedom Doc, accessible concierge healthcare. Once again, we are talking with Dr. Anthony Giorgio, Assistant Professor of Neurological Surgery, University of California, San Francisco, and Senior Affiliated Scholar with Mercatus Center. So obviously, big proponent of the free market. You've done all kinds of studies. You've helped consult on legislative uh, efforts at the state level, at the federal level. I'm curious, you know, when you're working with the state uh, out in California and then working with federal we covered a lot in the first part of this episode of, well, these things need to fall into place in order to do this type of stuff. What is the lowest hanging fruit out of any of the projects you've worked on that you're like, this wouldn't be that big of an effort to accomplish? I think, you know, quality, quality metric reform, as we touched on earlier, uh, I think is, is pretty low hanging fruit. I think CMS would have a lot of leeway in reforming how they do quality metrics. And, the, and they are starting with that. There is a meaningful metric reform. Uh, that was started in 2017 has been carried over uh, in the Biden administration. So um, I do want to applaud the efforts there. I think other low-hanging fruit is reforming, and I think you're, you're setting me up for this, but reforming the electronic health records and reforming the, the meaningful use mandates that came with uh, the electronic health records. Uh, I have a lot of my research going into that. Um, I think the way AI is moving uh, with GPTs and large language models, um, I think that uh, that whole field is ripe for disruption as long as the uh, government can just get out of the way and, and allow that to happen naturally. What gives you any faith that that's actually going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> I have to have faith or it'd be too depressing. Well, there's an um, old saying that first do no harm, right? And I just wish that the government, every elected official would also take that oath that we make our physicians take anytime they get into office, right? Unintended consequences. So, all right, let's 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 go there. I appreciate you giving me uh, uh, credit there for being a, a, a far more forward-thinking host than I think I, I really am. But let's talk about EMRs, right? What are you seeing as far as the biggest pain point from an EMR usage when it comes to a clinical setting? 
And I, I don't, I don't want to just bash EMRs across the board, right? I think they have really improved some aspects of clinical care. All right. If you talk to older docs they say, you know, back in my day, we had to go to the basement and radiology and hunt down all the MRIs and hang them up for, you know, our attending physicians and, and uh, heaven help us if we, if we missed one CT scan, uh, then it'd be, you know, the end of the day. Um, or we had to go gather all the lab results from the lab and, and have those written out. That no longer is the case, right? We have one click. Uh, we can get most of our labs and imaging. So there, there are improvements. However, the, the trade-off has been uh, very onerous in terms of, um, of order entry, of documentation, and the expectation that physicians are always uh, available to be on their EMR. Uh, it's almost because the EMR is too accessible. We're expected to always be able to access it. Um, so we ran a study here at UCSF in the neurosurgery department uh, where we looked at our on-call residents and uh, we pulled their audit logs so we could see uh, you know, from the EHR how long, how long they were actually logged into the EHR on an overnight 24-hour shift. Uh, and so in a 24-hour shift, they spent 20 hours logged into the EHR. So it's clearly a trade-off in efficiency then, right? Because they weren't spending 20 hours gathering imaging and lab results you know, prior to the implementation of EHR. So where is this that, that these massive inefficiencies have come with what really should be a time-saving technology, right? If you, again, went back 20 years and said, hey, we're going to digitize charts, every physician would say, great, this is going to save so much time. So why has that not panned out? And there's a lot of pain points that we're able to identify in some of our studies that are really kind of tethering our, our physicians to the EHR. So go ahead, go there, right? Like, please do. Like, why did, the, why did that not come true? What is standing in the way? I think part of it is the, the meaningful use recommend, or regulations that say that physicians have to be the ones putting in a large portion of the orders. Um, and order entry in EHRs is really, really inefficient. So, for example, I timed it once, uh, ordering a simple MRI is about 57 clicks or keystrokes. Uh, it takes about 90 seconds. Whereas in paper charts, you know, writing MRI on a sheet of paper and handing it to a nurse is a much quicker task. Every little thing requires an electronic order, uh, and it all has to be put in by a physician. So, you know, if, if a medication was ordered by mouth, but the patient has a feeding tube, uh, the nurse can't just switch that to feeding tube. A physician has to go into the chart and switch that order to by feeding tube. And so all these little things just add up, and, and it's you know, really death by 10,000 clicks. And then there's you know, regulations on top of that. So Congress has another, or CMS has another regulation called um, appropriate use criteria. Anytime you order imaging, you have to justify to the EHR why you're ordering that imaging. And of course, it questions you. So I will you know, see a patient in clinic. I'll write my notes. I'll say, you know, patient has brain tumor. We need to monitor every six months with new MRI. I will then put in the 57 clicks and keystroke store to the MRI. And then a pop-up shows up and says, are you sure you need this MRI? Are you sure that's the right imaging modality? And then I have to click through and say, well, yes, this patient has a brain tumor. Yes, I need this imaging. It says, well, did you try a CT scan first? And of course, you know, I had tried a CT scan first. It's in the chart, but I still had to put that through, you know, in the, so we, you know, this is all these things added up. And when we pulled our, our audit logs from the residents and yeah, you know, it's two minutes here with this one thing and it's another two minutes here and it's another three minutes here, all these different uh, little regulations that all add up and all of a sudden, uh, you're spending 20 hours on a 24-hour shift logged into the EHR. How many hours are actually spent face-to-face with the patient in contrast? Yeah, I mean, if they're, if they're on the computer, they're probably not giving their full attention to the patient. So, yeah, exactly. Less than four. Uh, you know, if 24-hour right. shift, yeah. 20 is on a computer, 
for you got four hours to actually talk to a living human being, walk the halls, use the get some food, whatever it is. So it's just like, holy cow! And I, I know we've seen different stats that for every ten minutes you know visit, you got to spend another twenty outside the the exam room, or give or take on that. Don't nobody send me any hate mail on my math on that one, but <laughs> so. I, I'm kind of seeing this 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 trend, I think, where insurance company, insurance billing codes, excuse me, uh, Medicare, there's this thirst for data. And it's almost gone too far where maybe we could get by with 100 codes rather than 300,000 codes. But it's just like thirst for data and being detailed. And I think it comes from a good place, but the execution of it has been so sloppy and everybody's just been lost in the shuffle from it. And it is actually, I don't care in my mind has taken a step back because of these tools that were supposed to come up here and really save healthcare and make it better. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is where I, I do think that there's some potential in AI. Again, I, I am a little bit pessimistic because I, I think that there's this, this thought that AI is going to save us. And like I mentioned, you know, if you had gone back 20 years and said, you know, electronic health records will save us, most people would agree. So I am a little bit pessimistic that AI won't be rolled out in in a way that can actually deburden or detether the physician from the EHR. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, you know, instead of uh, having to justify every little order I do, that the AI will be able to look through the chart and say, yes, this is indicated. Um, but then again, I'm fearful that it'll just be another pop-up that'll say, you know, questioning my, my clinical intuition. Uh, so I think the, the, there's a lot of different ways this can go with a, from a regulatory standpoint uh, to make sure it goes down one of those two paths. That's exactly what I was going to say is I don't see how AI gets around that problem that you just talked about of, say it's analyzing like a rash on someone's leg. Like, I don't know how you bring in the art side of medicine to say, okay, I've seen this before. I've recognized this. All these different things are adding up and going down this way, maybe, right? And so I don't, I don't see how you can get that in a computer program because you just talked about how computer programs are actually standing in the way, trying to make sure, again, probably well-intentioned that, hey, just making sure you did this and didn't just hit another button over here. But at the same time, you're second-guessing the person that we're depending on, the profession that we're depending on with a piece of code. Right. And I think there's a long way from technology and regulatory standpoint where AI can actually provide diagnoses or treatment recommendations, right? Like you mentioned AI looking at a rash in your leg. You know, the other big use case scenario is AI reading a CT scan or an MRI. I think that's a long way off, mostly from a regulatory standpoint, right? We don't have, the FDA doesn't have the regulatory processes in place by which it can um, approve software that is continuously updating and learning on the job, which AI does. However, I think the regulatory processes are in place for AI to deburden the physician. So if I am the one that's ultimately making the decision, AI can make my path to that decision easier. And again, you're going back to the, the example of the brain tumor patient. If I write in my note, this patient has a brain tumor, AI should know what I normally do for this patient. AI should be able to read my note and be able to read that patient's past history, and it should go ahead and place that order for me. It should code my note and provide the billing for that note as well, and then it should be able to you know, summarize uh, their clinical you know, brain tumor history for their primary care provider, for their oncologist, so that that person then doesn't have to go through and click through 300 prior notes looking for that little piece of information. 
So that's where AI really could be revolutionary. And I think the the regulatory framework is actually in place for that to happen now because it's not actually providing any diagnoses or treatment recommendations. It's simply summarizing and processing information to make it more efficient. Now, Dr. Georgia, I'm curious, given your work at the Mercatus Center, given your familiarity with the Free Market Medical Association and all the great you know, companies and people that make that up, how have you seen this free market medical movement with direct primary care, even concierge medicine, cash pay surgery centers? How have you seen those, I guess, that, that wave, that momentum influence our previous discussion from a federal and from a state level and from a patient choice concern? And again, I, I appreciate everything you guys are doing because I'm, I'm a trauma doctor, a neurosurgeon that specializes in trauma. I'm, I'm never going to be you know, part of a concierge cash pay system. Uh, don't say never. Don't say- <laughs> I can't, I, never I can't never. do what I do and, and, you know, really function at, at a, at a trauma hospital, you know, serving, uh, Medicaid patients yet. 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 Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to keep harping on it yet. Okay. I think there are ways we can get there to have better free market influences in like, say example, my, uh, my situation. One is reversing this ban on physician owned hospitals. Why can't I run a trauma center? I think I'd be okay at it. Um, I think there's certainly some issues with the way a lot of the trauma centers are run. So why can't physicians have buy-in and partial ownership of hospitals? Uh, I think that that's kind of ridiculous that there's this, this uh, prohibition on physician-owned hospitals. It came with uh, you know passage of the ACA. Lobbyists. Uh, so I think, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, I, there was a recent article about you know, American, I think American Hospital Association or something like that came out and said, physician-owned hospitals are a, still a very bad idea. And I'm like, wow, this is, right. this is, again, it goes back to like Orwellian doublespeak all the way through. And yeah, some of the arguments for that were, were well-meaning uh, arguments against you know, self-referral, right? So they're worried that you know, if I own the hospital, I'm going to refer the patient to the MRI scanner that I own in the hospital I own, and I'm going to refer them to you know, the oncologist group that's in the hospital I own, et cetera. But that's something that major health systems already do. And so I don't know why I'm any more prone to that behavior than, say, health, mega health system X. Um, you know, take your choice. It's a great point. That's an absolute great point. So, yeah, I jumped in there when you when you got me. So, uh, please, you know, finish your thought on on how you know the free market institutions, companies, startups, individuals are continuing to influence medicine from a state and federal level. Your organization is a great point, and I think just just showing that these cash pay surgery centers, that these direct primary care, that they do provide excellent patient quality at a low cost, um, and that that the free market, that healthcare is not this unique commodity that is somehow immune to free market forces. Um, just because we need a robust safety net uh, in healthcare doesn't mean the free market can't work to help drive down uh, costs and improve quality. Um, you know, th- There's plenty of social services, social needs that we consider essential, education, housing, food, that have robust free markets. And there's no reason that because uh, we think healthcare is the social good uh, that is somehow outside the, the realm of free market and these free market forces don't matter. I think that that, that is a, a pretty flawed argument. I think it's a good distinction to make because a lot of people default to the fact that, oh, it, healthcare doesn't work for the little guy and it's it's a free market. Free market has failed it. And it's an important distinction you just made that healthcare is one of those ones. Higher education is the other one. And there's a lot of similarities there that it has the most government involvement. It's really a monopoly or an oligarchy uh, from most standpoints that we have. And it's a very controlled, very regulated industry. 
And that's why we're here, not because of any type of free market forces. Um, Dr. Georgia, you already kind of explained a little bit on what your your perfect healthcare system looks like. So I'm not going to end with that question. I'm going to give you the famous billboard question. So you are made billboard czar of the United States. You got control to put any message you want to. It's got to be the same one. And it's got to be legible from 80 miles an hour on the highway. You got every billboard in the country to help educate people about you know, this topic and other things you're passionate about in healthcare, what do you put on there? I would say something to the effect of uh, free market is the only way to restore that patient-physician relationship. That if the patient has control over their healthcare financing, then you don't have to worry about government saying you can't do X, Y, Z. You don't have to worry about government judging these arbitrary quality metrics or government imposing this inefficient EHR. If the patient has the ultimate control, uh, then it's really just about what happens between that patient and the physician and dictating your medical care. We're going to have to drive by really slowly to read all the, the print <laughs> on the billboard. But I believe message message was well-received. We'll work on uh, getting that on T-shirts uh, so that we can, we can proliferate that one. Dr. Anthony DiGiorgio, Assistant Professor of Neurological Surgery. University of California, San Francisco, and Senior Affiliated Scholar with Mercatus Center. Dr. Giorgio, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you very much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.